Hi there, and welcome to Talking Commodities, the podcast series where leaders in commodities trading, procurement, risk management, and sourcing come to share truly actionable insights based on real-world experiences with the biggest global companies. Talking Commodities is brought to you by the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. The first center is kind, offering educational programs and research focused on commodities taught by experienced industry experts. Go to business.ucdenver.edu slash commodities to find out more. And Chai, a London technology business who help companies secure more margins, stable prices, and better outcomes. Chai has developed an intuitive web application that provides users with crucial insights and commodities price predictions made by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters, from satellite imagery to freight data. To get access to Chai, go to chaipredict.com. That's C-H-A-I predict.com. Now, over to Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of Chai, and Tom Brady, Executive Director of the JPMCC, for this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another edition of our podcast. And today we are really excited to be joined by Alain Lecomte. Alain is a commodity strategist with deep expertise in data science and in the commodity markets. Currently, he is a senior economic insights manager at General Mills, where he enables the sourcing organizations to identify optimal coverage strategies by synthesizing both fundamental and quantumental analysis. Alan is a early adopter of the innovative new approaches to commodity market analysis. And we are really looking forward to today's conversation, where hopefully Alan will be sharing some of his key insights and ideas. Alan, you're very welcome, and it's great to talk to you again today. Thanks very much, Stephen. I'm really glad for the opportunity today, and I look forward to this discussion. Great, Alan. And again, thanks for uh, being part of our, uh, again, the podcast. Great to see you. A few questions on your background. You know, one of the things that I uh, find very striking about uh, your career and experience is applying techniques from the forefront of research to industry. How did you get involved in this line of work in the first place? It was a bit random, I must say, you know, because I studied physics. And uh, when I decided not to pursue an academic career, I did a second master's degree in financial engineering to become a, a quant because I wanted to keep sort of technical aspect of the job, at least when starting in in the financial world. And I had the chance to do the internship at a hedge fund at Société Générale in Paris as a quant analyst. And it was very interesting. It was a a great group of people. They were very good at what they were doing. But because I didn't have experience in financial markets, I didn't understand why things were moving. And if you do quant strategies, maybe you don't care. But, but I was missing that. And so I got the chance after the internship to join Cargill as a commodity analyst. And I was very excited to learn about commodities, sort of real world events, you know, the weather, industrial supply chains, et cetera. And I joined shipping. So that's a very, you know, physical market. So I was very excited to join that and learn about how the world of commodities and the global economy was working. And then it was a super cycle and I, I ended up staying. So that's, that's how it all started. I noticed it early on in my career that just this, I did see a lot of uh, physics trained uh, individuals uh, kind of marrying up with financial markets and financial engineering. I mean, how was, how do you think that that those two have really helped you out in, you know, over your career, the combination of those two disciplines? 
you know, for for us uh, trained physicists, there was a there was a saying when we finished our studies is, oh yeah, physics, you can do anything with that. And the reality in the job market, people said, well, you you don't know how to do anything, and uh, because of that, people end up in in many different places. And we, when I look at where all my classmates were going, um, they, you know, they're all over all over the place, and and a few ended up in, in financial markets and some are still sort of quants and quantitative portfolio managers, whereas some, you know, move completely to, um, you know, left that all behind. And that was like an entry point, but it's certainly, um, I think finance has hired lots of quantitative people for a long time and the commodity world started doing that. I'm not sure when, but, but later than the finance world. That was that was an interesting evolution. Alan, one thing that we do before we have these podcasts is we always do a little bit of background and we sort of you know chat about people's experiences and how they get into it. And and I noticed on your profile, it mentions that whilst you were at uh, SockGen that you you were researching the application of wavelet analysis of hedge fund strategies. That sounds right. quite fascinating. Is it something that you can talk about, or is it very top secret? No, 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 no. Uh, with, yeah, I. I never thought someone would bring up wavelets again, <laughs> but it's a great example of why the finance world was interested in getting, you know, physicists and mathematicians on board. Tom, you probably know that wavelets were developed from for petroleum geology, originally by a French mathematician, French woman. I used them for research at a particle accelerator facility during an internship, and so when these hedge funds saw that on my resume, they thought. Oh, you know, that's we've heard people talk about that. Let's get this guy in and see what we can do with it. And it was probably overkill for you know what they had in mind. It allows you to see things at different scales. So they were really glad to have, you know, had me on, on a few months research, research it. And I was working on much more practical strategies at the same time. And in the end, I don't think that sort of research went anywhere. But I think that's something the hedge funds have been doing for a long, long time is get people from science and technology to try any new techniques and be at the forefront, right? And you see, again, to commodities, that came, I think, later, but it's now something that pretty much every, everyone is also doing. You know, after Cargill, uh, on your background, you know, you spent close to 17 years at Cargill covering ocean transport metals and, and ultimately the ag commodities. You know, it must have been a very interesting time to be in those those spaces, you know, we had some significant economic events going on, and you also had a front row seat to the explosion of data, computational power, you know, the you know the you know data science, machine learning becoming less fringe, so to speak. Do you have any reflections from your key learnings at, at a place like Cargill? Sure. And uh, what I started just to frame that some of these markets were just transforming. And you had the liberalization of electricity markets in Europe, and that led to the liberalization of the coal market. And shipping transformed significantly as well. And these markets became, you know, saw a lot of liquidity come in, a lot of new players. There were a lot of new instruments that allowed different strategies in there. And with that as well, you had a lot more data over the years, right? So when I joined, I would say finding the right piece of data was was already pretty good. You would find out about some things, you know, days, days later or weeks later, right? And you see after the years, data becoming a lot more public, becoming frequent. You see external companies starting to operate in, in a packaged manner, in an easy way. 
And uh, that, I think, really changed the game. One interesting example, which for me was transformed the, the industry, was the AIS data. And that's the, that's the radio signals that every ship, for safety reasons, broadcasts. And uh, we were one of the first to sign a contract to get this type of data for sort of a more trading purpose rather than you know, port operations or, or logistics only. And it, it required a lot of work to find out what to do with this data and make useful strategies from it, et cetera. But if you think about AIS today, there's lots of free public websites where they, you, know, you can get apps, it's, it's everywhere. But not only is that sort of raw data you know, easily available, but it's been augmented. Some of the stuff we had to build you can now you know, you know, buy from um, various places. And that means the extra advantage of doing this yourself you know, is sort of gone if, if you can pay for it. So for me, that's a really good example from being something that in, I would say 2005, six, when I probably first found out about it, was not anyone I knew in the industry was using to something becoming very standard. That's actually really interesting. And that brings me on actually to my next question. So as you say, there's a huge amount of sort of data available now that hadn't been available previously or to only to the sort of the biggest and most innovative firms. So how have you found when you do like market research at an FMCG like General Mills, how does that compare to when you worked at places like SockGen or Cargill, you know, are there differences now that you're looking at or are there similarities now that you use? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite different. And at the, at the same time, of course, you're looking at the same markets and you're trading some of the same instruments. So if you have, um, if you lose 10 million tons of corn in the harvest in Brazil, you know, that impacts everyone, right? And you want to know about it. But for some, the core business is knowing about it a lot faster than others. And acting very fast. And if you put a profitable trade, and let's say three days later, the rain comes in the forecast and you take your profit, for some, that's the core business. For others, you maybe you're already covered 12 months out. And it, it changes your view and you work on a different strategy, but you have a very different time horizon. And so the need for data is also very different. The need for fast access to data is also quite different. I think a big difference as well is on the cash side of the business, on the physical side of the business. You know, if you trade cargoes yourself, you also need data on a much more granular level. Maybe it's port by port, it's, uh, you know, different regions, et cetera. Whereas if you're more global or if it's more for a hedge instrument that's further away from your core business, it's more the big picture that matters to you. And so again, the data is going to be different. And I would say another key difference, you know, back to that sort of time frame or time horizon, that also drives the type of data you want. You know, is your is your trading strategy about what happens in the next one week to three months, or or is it about the next one year, two years, and that impacts the type of data you have? But a big difference as well is if it's your core business, you're probably going to invest a lot more in, in data and analysis than if it's uh, than if it's not, right? And I think that's where the trading houses you know manage to remain competitive by investing in that space. That's very interesting, actually. And I mean, clearly, you've got a huge amount of experience in this. I just want to turn slightly to just talk about innovation and technology. And, you know, are there any things right now, ideas or technologies that you're embracing that you're really excited about that you can talk to us about? Sure. Yeah, maybe I should have said that at the start, right? But I'm not talking in any capacity representing the company. 
all these views and opinion are on my own. So some of these spaces I think are very exciting is the continuing analysis and application of satellite imagery, right? And using satellite imagery, for instance, in agriculture was probably there pretty much as, as early as we had satellites, right? But if you see the use of AI or machine learning, and image recognition is, is maybe the area where these perform best. So it's very well suited to satellite imagery. And what's hard, and that brings me back also to, you know, how the industry is evolving and finance versus commodity trading houses versus the FMCGs, for instance, is if you have the capacity to do to handle a huge amount of data and to do AI or machine learning analysis you know, yourself or through partners, then you can be at the forefront. You can be one of the first to do that. And then you can uh, get the early gain. But for the, for the broader industry, once you get a few specialized companies that manage to turn the data into the actionable insights you need, then that's kind of a game changer because it, it levels the playing field. So it, so it allows producers, consumers who might not have the capacity or the size to invest and be at the forefront, but it allows them to catch up and be at a more level playing field. And I, and I don't think we've seen the end of this when it comes to uh, uh, using satellite imagery to derive a good view on, on crops, a good view on, on mining, et cetera. And some of that, some different industries are at different stages as well. And some of these problems are, are harder than others. But I think that's one area that's where you see quite a few companies uh, pushing hard at the moment. You know, kind of another uh, general question for you, but, you know, with your experience, how would you go about setting up a best-in-class commodity analysis team? You know, if you were going to set it up from scratch, any thoughts there? Well, that's a great question, as much an HR question as a, as a sort of commodity analyst question here. First thought that comes to mind is really, what's the business strategy? And that's going to really drive the size of your team, the way it is structured, and I've seen different models over the years and, and you know, different companies. I know it's for some of them, it's one trading desk, one analyst, part of the desk. For others, you have a large research team, you know, big, big structure that works across the organization. So that's the first thought is, is what type of organization? Because that also drives some of the other decisions here. Something I think that's interesting is you now have graduates that come out of specific programs for commodities, right? And Tom, yours is one of them. Closer to home for me, because I, I'm in the Geneva region in Switzerland, the, there's been for a number of years, the um, master's degree in commodity from the Swiss um, Trading and Shipping Association. And I had the chance of working with a couple of these uh, graduates. And so with specific programs, then you can say, well, okay, I'm looking for people that already know about commodities. But that wasn't the case before that. And I think a lot of people enter this space from different backgrounds. So for me, that's the first thing I would look into is, do you need specialists? And that depends on your market. Do you need an agronomist? Do you need a petroleum engineer? Do you need someone that has the experience in, in shipping logistics, right? Or do you want more of an economist? And having a mix of the experience and the more specialist type of profiles with young graduates, you know, or people coming from, maybe they've spent a couple of years somewhere else and they come in, I think that's interesting. And for the younger ones, I think the, the way you offset the experience is by being really good in that data and technology space and know how to do things 
the way you do them today. Because we, we all know if you spend 20 years in your career, you know, you, it's very hard to remain the, up to speed and really good at the new technology. So I think that's an inter interesting mix. And I would look at that in a team. Yeah. That's a great, uh, great advice. Thanks for that. What does the price of lithium mean for the future of electric vehicles and iPhones? Learn answers to commodity questions like this with experts from the forefront of research and industry at the J.P. Morgan Center for Commodities at the CU Denver Business School. Join us on Wednesday, July 21st for an online information session on academic courses, non-degree certificates, and professional education offerings. You can also visit our website at business.ucdenver.edu backslash commodities for more information. As they say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. On that, though, just going back, touching on what you were talking about, like younger people that are trying to get into the industry. And, you know, again, based on the experience of you've been on sort of both sides of the of the fence, per se, in, in a financial and in sort of a consumer firms, what sort of skills and attributes is it that you really are looking for in employees to bring into your teams right now? No, that's a, that's a really good question again. There was a time when we were hiring uh, lots of people, you know, so super boom times. And these were a time where it was hard to find, you know, the job market was tight. And so the number one thing I was always after was curiosity because we, we hired people from lots of different backgrounds, right? And again, you didn't have maybe necessarily the specialized educations. So what do you really care most about? And I would say curiosity is absolutely key if you want to be a market analyst um, in commodities, because you want, you want to have on your team people that, that can go you know, the extra mile in figuring out weather patterns and the potential impacts, or they read about something and it's, they were curious about it, they, they went further, they dug into it, and, and actually they come up with something that maybe the market hasn't realized, or maybe just the firm they're in hasn't realized. And that is not something that's easy to learn over time. I, I find that often curious people remain curious all their lives. And so that, that's a big, big one because it drives motivation. If you're a market analyst, it's quite likely that some days you're going to spend a couple hours or a few hours, you know, going exploring one direction and you're not sure what the end result will be. And so you need that drive. And I think that if you're generally interested in these fields and the implications for society and the economies, I think that's really helped. So that's a very general one. A second one, before I move into more harder skills, but the second one would be communication. You can have the best analysis in the world, but if you can't communicate it to your sourcing team, the, the buyers, senior leadership, it's not going to take you uh, very far. And just a question on that, when you talk about communicating, are you talking about sort of written work? Or are you talking about actually presentation skills and people getting up in front of groups of people in a room and presenting their ideas or their findings? I was thinking more about, you know, getting in front of the room. That depends very much on the firm, the size of the firm, right? Some of them might be more in writing. I've seen a lot of, let's say, communication with smaller groups. So it doesn't mean being at ease in front of a crowd, right? It's more being able to synthesize your analysis and be able to you know, get your point across. And again, it doesn't mean being like the, the, the speaker in front of uh, an audience, but you want to be able to handle questions and challenges and people will challenge your view and you need to be able to do that well in order to be effective. 
And then if I move towards the more, uh, you know, sort of the hard skills, well, experience, I think I touched on that, right? So it's whether you need specific experience or more general one, but you, I think I touched on that already. And then the last one, it's on the sort of data technology skills. And I think in today's world, that's, that's essential. It's sort of the, you know, the language of data is the, the one that analysts use every day. You don't need an IT degree, but you don't want the technical side to get in the way of doing your job. And what's fascinating with the evolution of the field is how you know it's moved over, and I've been in a bit, a bit more than 15 years, it's moved from the Excel spreadsheet to people running you know, uh, Python notebooks to test their ideas and, and models. So you want people to do that. So I would encourage, uh, and I usually encourage um, people that are you know, studying or getting early in their career, learn these skills. They're gonna be valuable all the time. And the tools today, they're powerful and they're not, they're quite fun. You know, we, we've moved a long way over the decades. One of the things I just wanna go back to, cause you mentioned it right at the start of this was that you said, you know, sometimes commodities markets are slow to embrace change and and you know historically they've been a bit slower than some of the other sort of equity sectors and some you know foreign exchange and, and other places where people uh, have had this information i mean and that's almost one of the reasons why chai was formed to try and help small and medium-sized enterprise develop their skills show them the data is available and help them sort of you know navigate the commodities markets have you noticed that there's been a change as time has gone by in the perception that people have got actually there is information now available for me to make decisions or is it always been oh it's just the biggest most advanced you know funds trading houses guys like that that have this information or actually is the is the field becoming more level now it's a great question right i would and i would say yes and no there's probably two sides to this certainly there's no probably no doubt in anyone's mind today that data is so pervasive and it's become free and democratized that you, you know, you, you have to use it. And everyone's heard about, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, even if they might not really know what it is, but they probably know they need to do something with it. Right. And I remember a couple of years ago, meeting with sort of analyst community here in the, in the Geneva region. And, and it was interesting because that, yeah, I think pretty much every firm, everyone in that room had hired a data scientist for the team. That was just like a given. And that was interesting. And that was, that was a couple of years ago when, when it became like really fashionable, yeah. right? But, but you could see the transformation in the industry. And, and I think that, you know, definitely, I, I don't think the industry thinks that it can do things the old way. I think the realizations that markets have evolved so much, moving so fast and that information is pretty much fully available everyone realizes that and then knows you you don't want to be left behind so do you think people are a lot more open-minded now about the use of technology within the commodities markets or do you still face certain bits of resistance sometimes from you know everyone's got a boss everyone has to justify the cost of of using this information you know do do you find people are a lot more open-minded now about it and, and trust you and just say right just go with your gut or do you still find there's always a bit of a pushback on, on ideas that you're coming up with? It's hard to speak for the entire industry, but from what I've seen, the, the people I, I talk to, I would say over the last, but it's been an evolution, right? But, but over the last um, 12, 13 years, maybe since the, since the burst of the, since the great financial crisis, possibly, there was a, a big change in attitude, right? Because before that, 
in a way, it was too easy in such a bull cycle. You know, the money was coming in. So why spend your time building sophisticated models where you might not need them, right? And I, th and I think after that came the realization that things would get harder. And it's certainly been an evolution. I've seen more people ask for, you know, smart data science projects than refuse them. Now you bring up costs. And that, you know, that obviously is the harder part, right? Is to justify it, what is the size of the investment? What is the time of actually building it and, and getting something valuable? I'm not saying this is easy, but certainly the mindset is quite favorable. Any advice do you have for people just starting their careers, either, you know, they finished a bachelor's or a master's degree? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and maybe, you know, this is more specific to my field, right? It's not just a general general advice but i would say remain curious back to my point about curiosity and that means in your in your first role or even maybe before the end of the studies how do you know whether someone's curious is often you can see in their curriculum is what they studied they did something completely different from the from the core curriculum just because they liked it you know because they wanted to explore that so i think that's that's quite key in, in making sure you don't just go into one line of work in a linear fashion, but you're, you're ready to explore all the different options that an early career will offer you as, as choices, right? So that's one. And that means also being open to various options on the job prospects that you can get and be ready to, to change and move and, and build a very, you know, varied experience, especially at the start of your career. That's, I think, number one. Number two is to take really good care of your network. Because when you're when you're a student or you know still still in these young years, you're surrounded by your peers and and the whole networking just happens very naturally, right? And over the years, if you take good care of these relationships, I think you build very valuable contacts in for work and for life. You know, obviously, and you know who knows that friend from school, maybe ten years later, you'll be founding a, a company with that person, and it and it's something that requires work again that transition away from. The education world into the professional work. And I would encourage people to take good care of that network. And maybe lastly, don't stop learning. Right. I think there's an expectation today that every employee is on a on a non-stop learning journey throughout their career. Maybe for graduates, they're happy not to be in school anymore. But the learning, the learning doesn't stop. And there's so many ways today to to learn about you know new topics, new subjects, get involved, organizations. I would say that make that an ongoing part of your life. You know, kind of related to that, any good books you've read lately or piece of research that you could uh, recommend, uh, you know, again, that kind of that quest for perpetual learning? Well, related to markets, I'm still reading The New Map by Daniel Jurgen. I must say I loved his previous books on the history of petroleum. I recommend them to anyone. It's almost a must read for people in my team. But I must admit, by the end of the day, I get tired of reading. So I've turned to podcasts to explore themes outside my day-to-day. -day. There's not so many of them available, including yours. So lately, I've tend to focus on green policies around the world that gave a new life to the carbon economy or the impact that renewable diesel policies have on having new capacity, the impact on agricultural markets. Well, I find energy markets fascinating. So I've listened to podcasts on the impact on renewable energy on the European power market structure, on the potential for hydrogen as a fuel, the future of batteries, the battle for access to rare earth, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I even find that some of the subscriptions we pay for 
people make podcasts freely available that kind of summarize what they do. And that's an interesting shift. And so I've done that as well. So I must say, you know, thank you for contributing to create great podcasts for industry and for allowing me to share my experience today. It's been fun. Well, uh, Alan, thanks from so much for your time. That was just great to see you virtually and, and hear your, your comments uh, to both uh, Stephen and I. So thank you. Yeah, we've run out of time as always, but it's been a real pleasure, Alan. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences. Well, thanks very much for having me on today. So that's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show as a future guest, and you think you've got something contrarian to say, please do get in touch. My email address is jake at chipredict.com. Today's show was written and co-hosted by Stephen Butler and Tom Brady. Special thanks to Erica Hyman of the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at UC Denver and Maria Valentina, who produced the podcast. Thanks very much. See you next time.